Merry Christmas to all of you in-house. Thank you, Riley. Thank you. Merry Christmas to all of you joining us online. We're so glad to have you worshiping with us today, whether you are near or far. We're so glad to have you part of our Bethel Church family and friends. Now, I don't know if you are like an early Christmas celebrator. Maybe you're the November 1st people, uh, or maybe you're the December 1st people. Uh, it doesn't really matter because I was looking on the church calendar, and today is the first day of Advent. So it's here. Christmas is in the building. I was writing my Christmas sermon this week, and uh, I was just, you know, you're trying to get in the mood, and it's like, I just wasn't quite there yet, and so I thought I could have some help today. I wore my Christmas socks today to help me. There you go. I got those last year. How many know when you get socks on Christmas Day, you can't really wear them, so you have to, like, I've had these in the closet for the year, waiting for today. So many great things to love about Christmas, isn't there? You love the music, you love the decoration and the lights. Maybe you're going to go to the parade this afternoon and the light up uh, down at Gyro Park. Uh, all the family traditions, the parties and the get-togethers. Uh, how many love the Christmas baking? Yeah, how many love the charcuterie boards that seem to make their way out at Christmas time, the turkey dinner, all that fun stuff. You know I love me some Christmas food. Uh, really, really great. Uh, how about the Hallmark movies? Okay. Well, I heard about a man that fell asleep uh, in the middle of one of the Hallmark movies, and he woke up in the middle of the next movie, and it took him 20 minutes to figure out it wasn't the same movie. <laughs> There's so much joy, so much festivity to embrace in this holiday season. You know, for many people, though, Christmas can also bring another guest. It's the unwanted visitor of stress. How many have ever felt Christmas stress at the holiday season, right? Christmas stress, and, and it's no wonder there's so many demands, right? There's so many parties and shopping and baking and cleaning and entertaining to do. And uh, according to a study by the American Psychological Association, they tell us that 69% of people report feeling stressed at the holiday season around the idea of lacking time. Anyone ever felt like you lacked time to get done all the things that need to get done, right? Well, 69% people felt they didn't have enough time. Another 69% also felt a lack of money. Anyone ever felt the lack of money around the holiday season? They just felt like the budget was tight and uh, all of these things. And 51% are stressed about the pressure to give good gifts. Well, this is a no-pressure Sunday. I just want you to not feel any pressure today. Uh, but there's a lot of stressed-out people in this season. Maybe you ran into some of them at the parking lot at the grocery store yesterday, and you were fighting over the spot trying to see. There's some stressed-out people. You know, how many know that gift-giving pressure is a real thing? Have you ever struggled to come up with a good gift for someone who seemed to have everything? You ever had that pressure? You know, it's on your mind. You're trying to think about what you could get this person. And this is what inevitably always happens. As soon as you think of something, you go to get it and you find out that it's sold out, right? And then you got to start all over again. There's a lot of good gift-giving gift, uh, uh, gift pressure pressure. I remember as a kid, I was probably about 13, 12, 13, and I was starting to earn some money of my own. And I remember one Christmas, I wanted to buy my parents a gift with my own money. Kids, Bates kids, you know, you can do it. You know, it's possible, right? I wanted to buy them gifts. And the, I was reflecting on this this week, and it seemed so easy back then. I just knew right away what I wanted to get them. 
And, uh, and so my dad, every year, he would get this one item that he would get, uh, and I wanted to be the one that would get it for him this year with my own money. And, uh, and so I was reflecting on this week uh, that I bought him Brute Soap on a Rope. Anyone remember Soap on a Rope? <laughs> Any of the men? Brute Soap on a Rope. I see a hand back there. Yeah. Soap on a Rope. Like, if you just get someone a bar of soap, that's lame. But if you put soap on a rope... That's good gift right there. I was looking it up. Did you know that you can buy Brute Soap on a Rope as a vintage item? I found it here. Listen to this description of this. Buy this. Get your hands on this rare find. A dead stock Brute 33 bar of soap on a rope. It's in great condition. Unused. Okay, that's good to know. It says it has some marks on the soap. Minor dents, etc. Brute soap on a rope. Who knew that it would be a classic? Anyone got a bar of brute soap on a rope kicking around at home? Well, I bought my dad brute soap on a rope, but then I was reflecting on this. Do you remember last year I preached a sermon on the worst gift I've ever gotten? I don't know what it was, but I, this part of my mind was totally like forgotten, and this week it unlocked. I think I gave my mom a worse gift than any gift I've ever received. I got her this gift right here. Take a look at this. I even got it on a video for you. Look at this. This is a fiber optic color changing flower. And I found this on Genie's Vintage Gems. Now this flower would change colors. And uh, as a 12 year old kid, I thought my mom would love a fiber optic color changing flower. Now I apologize if you had one of these, uh, but this is a rare find going now for $112 on Genie's Vintage Gems. Parents, I just want you to know if your parent, if your kids give you some junky gifts, just hold on to them long enough and they'll become vintage and then you'll be able to sell them for a good amount of money. Mom and dad, I'm sorry for the gifts that I bought you as a kid. You know, over the past couple of days, as the Christmas season started ramping up, I've seen social media posts, uh, you know, celebrating the holidays and all that's coming. I've also seen some posts about how to handle holiday stress. And I just think that as we look at the holiday season, as Christmas is unfolding in front of us, I think the best way to beat Christmas stress is to stress what's most important about Christmas. Right? The best way to beat Christmas stress is to stress what's most important about Christmas. It's not the gifts. It's not the baking. It's not having everything perfect for when your mother-in-law comes over for Christmas dinner. It's not about being the holiday hero, is it? Right? We, but we know that. We know the true meaning about what Christmas is about, and yet we still find ourselves being pulled along in the midst of all the Christmas chaos. You know what? I don't think God ever wanted us to be filled with stress and stressed out in this season of celebration. He didn't send his son to be our savior uh, so that we'd be stressed out trying to celebrate him, did he, right? And so uh, the best way to beat Christmas stress is to stress what's most important about Christmas. And so with that in mind, we're going to be looking, uh, uh, kicking off our Christmas sermon series today, and we want to pause. We want to pause in the midst of the, the busyness. We want to reflect on the cause for all of this celebration. I want us to pause, and, and instead of trying to make everything perfect, I want to look at the one who is our perfect uh, gift. I want to look at the one who uh, is, meets us in the midst of our imperfection. I want to 
pause from all the hurrying and scurrying to center our thoughts on our Savior. And so with that, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah for all of you Australians. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod uh, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. And then comes this passage that we know so well at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. You know, in these verses written over 700 years before the Christmas story unfolded in an unassuming stable uh, are part of over 332 prophecies of Scripture describing the coming Savior of the world, describing the nature of the Messiah. Some of the, over 60 of them are specific details and over 260 of them are characteristics of our Savior. And I was just looking at the odds of what it would be to fulfill some of these prophecies. I want to encourage you today that there is a 1 in 250 million chance that you'll be hit by lightning today. One in 250 million chance that you're going to be struck by lightning today. Now, over the course of your lifetime, that goes down. One in 9,300 chance that you're going to be struck by lightning. Just to encourage you today. Uh, so it's possible. Odd, odds, odds are rare, but possible. But when we look at Jesus' prophecies, when we see that he prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem to a, a virgin, to see that his death would come by crucifixion, to see that the time of his uh, uh, living would be coinciding with the construction of the, and the existence of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, some uh, theologians have looked, and the odds of fulfilling even just eight of these prophecies would be one and to 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power, what is that? One in a quadrillion. Quadrillion. Can you imagine that? 17 zeros, a quadrillion. And as we look at this, <clears throat> the odds of Jesus coming in the way that was foretold, it's no coincidence to, to just fulfill eight of those prophecies. We can look at Jesus' life with confidence and know that it's not a coincidence, but that God's fingerprints have been all over this story. You know, when reading a scripture, it's important to read the verses within their context. 
You know, when we want to see within the context what is happening in this moment, what is happening when this scripture is written? Uh, where is this happening? Who is this being written to? And, you know, as we read scripture, it's important for us to know that these aren't just ideas and concepts, but this is a story unfolding at a time and place in history. The God's story of humanity isn't just a concept, it's not an ideology, it's the story of God unfolding in actual history. And so we look at the context in which scripture is written. Now if we're honest as Christians, living on the fulfilled side of the coming, uh, the first coming of our Savior, uh, Jesus, as we, as we live on this fulfilled side, we often don't go to the Old Testament prophecies to, to examine their context. We just look at later on, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they tell us that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. But over the next few weeks, I want us to look at the context of what's happening in this passage. We want to dig into the scripture to understand more fully the issues that God is addressing in these passages. And from that, we can gain insight to apply to our own lives. So here's a quick background to this story. It's about 700 years B.C., uh, the United Kingdom, before there was a United Kingdom in Britain, there was a United Kingdom in Israel. We had uh, Israel to the north, and we had Judah to the south. And at this point, the United Kingdom has had a schism, and they are broken, and they are existing separately. Israel to the north has turned their hearts from God, and Judah to the south traditionally has been following uh, God. But Judah is the smaller of the two. And Judah is the place where that holy city, Jerusalem, is located. At this time, people in the Middle East are starting to get nervous. It seems to be something that they've dealt with through all of history. But there's a nervousness rising because there's a new superpower on the rise. It's this, the nation of Assyria is gaining strength. And the surrounding nations are growing nervous. And so Judah's king, King Ahaz, is feeling really vulnerable. Being in one of the smaller countries, he's already ex uh, experienced attacks from the Edomites and from the Philistines, and so everyone's already on edge. And so in this moment of weakness and uncertainty and vulnerability, King Ahaz uh, knows that he is supposed to turn to the Lord for strength, to remember the promises of God, to trust that God would protect his people. But what does Ahaz do instead? We see in 2 Kings 16 that he makes a secret alliance with Assyria to protect them. Instead of trusting in the power of God, Ahaz is playing power politics. When we look at this, we see that Ahaz is playing a political game. How we know that, that our, the solutions for our world are not found in politics. It doesn't matter which party is in power. The, the power to change our world isn't found in policy. It's found in the changing and transformation of hearts. But we see Ahaz playing this political game and what's happening is that he looks like he's following God on the outside publicly. He's declaring his faithfulness and commitment to God but inwardly and secretly he has a side deal with the enemy just in case. You know, pu publicly he's talking a good game in front of the people. He's talking about trust in the Lord but privately he's building his own little support system just in case God doesn't come through for him. How many know that we are sometimes tempted to do that, right? They 
outwardly we're talking about faith and trust in God, but inwardly that fear drives us to build our own support system to kind of put something on the side uh, just in case God doesn't come through. It's all going really well. No one's really the wiser until Syria and Israel to the north start pressuring Judah to join them in an alliance to attack the Assyrians. You know, uh, Ahaz can't do it because he's already made this side deal. He's already made a treaty with the enemy. You know, realizing what happens, Syria and Israel, they look at Judah and they say, we're going to attack your nation. Ahaz, we're going to remove you from the throne. We're going to put our own king on the throne of Judah who's going to be aligned with us. Now talk about stress. Ahaz is in a no-win situation. And it's in this moment that God sends the prophet Isaiah to him. The prophet who speaks to the people. And the Lord sends Isaiah to King Ahaz to encourage him. Encourage him to turn back to God. Encourage him to trust in God for the care and provision of his people. The Lord sees how Ahaz is feeling. He sees the pressure that he's under and he sends someone with the word of God. He sends Isaiah to bring him an assuring word. How many know that the Lord sees you in your pressure? Sometimes in the middle of things, we don't sense that God sees us, but God sees us. And in those seasons, he always brings a word in season to us. And this is the word that Isaiah brought to King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. He says, don't worry, the invasion is not going to happen. How many would love to have a word from God telling you, don't worry? He says, don't worry. Isaiah tells Ahaz, everything you worried about, you don't need to worry about. Trust in God. He's got this. He's got you. You don't need to worry. God's clearly saying to Ahaz, trust in me. Turn to me. Believe in me because I'm for you. I will protect you. I'll help you, bless you, rescue you. Just turn to me. God is promising Ahaz peace in the midst of chaos. It's not tied to a bailout. It's not tied to a side deal with the enemy. God says, turn to me. But the tragedy is that Ahaz, like many of us at times, doesn't take the Lord up on his offer. Instead of believing God and taking his word, instead of breaking off his alliance with Assyria and calling the people of Judah to prayer and to worship and devotion to God, Ahaz doubles down on his doubt. He doubles down on his unbelief and he calls on Assyria to come and rescue Judah from Syria and, and Israel. You know, having made a deal with the devil, so to speak, God lets Ahaz know that the power he looked to to save him will soon be the power that overcomes and enslaves him. How we know that the things that we look to in this earth that aren't the Lord are the things that we look to to save us will eventually overpower and enslave us. Right? You want to talk, if you want to look to money as our savior, we will soon be enslaved to the fear of not having enough, the fear of, of overworking, the fear of debt, the fear of overspend, all kinds of things happening in our life. If we look to people and relationships to save us, it's the very relationships that fail us that are going to enslave us with brokenheartedness and heaviness. God says that the thing you look to to save you will overpower and enslave you. And so Assyria 
comes and they conquer Judah and they rule it with a heavy fist. They will eventually give way to Rome, eventually give way, and you know the history that happens in the nation of uh, Israel and Judah. But I love the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is about an unrelenting God in pursuit of his people. It's about God who wants his people to know that he is for them. He wants us to know that God is for us. And so we come to this very phrase in this passage that we're basing our series on, unto us, unto us. Would you say that with me? Unto us. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a Savior is given. So when you see this passage of context, you can see the immediate hope that Israel is speaking to the middle. Those people are in the midst of chaos. They're in the midst of stress and persecution. The world hasn't changed. I often hear that the world is getting worse. I'm not so sure. I think it's always been in some state of flux. Uh, and it's been very similar throughout all of human history. And it's into this moment that it says Zebulun and Naphtali, the areas of Judah, will be humbled. But there was going to come a time when the people who are in deep darkness will see a light. For those who live in the land of darkness, a light will shine. And we see that unfolding as Jesus comes on the scene. And then this phrase, for unto us the child is born. Unto us the son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. God, Israel prophesies about God's plan of salvation, and he gives four characteristics of this coming child, four characteristics of our Savior, and you might have guessed there are four Sundays from now until Christmas, and so we're going to be looking at one of these each week. And so I want to turn our attention to our wonderful counselor today to see what strength, comfort, encouragement, and hope that God would want to give us. Have you ever gotten bad advice? You got to be careful who you get advice from, don't you? There's a lot of well-meaning people who can really lead you astray with their advice. I turned to the internet this week to find some advice. How many know that is a really not a great place to go? But here's some th- words of advice that I found from people on the internet. Uh, the best way to keep a leftover cake moist is to eat it all in one sitting. Uh, take it or leave it. I think it's kind of good advice, but... Uh, Here's one for you. Uh, some of you are engaged and I, there's a, you know, looking to get married. Some of you have been married just a little while. The next time your wife is mad at you, distract her by making her laugh. When she's mad, get a dish towel and drape it over her shoulders like a cape and say, there, now you're super mad. That's bad advice, I'm just telling you. Uh, here's one. This is from a well-meaning grandpa. If you see a bear and don't have time to run away, hug it. Bears can't scratch their stomachs. I don't know. Try it. We'll see. You got to be careful who you turn to for advice. And so here we see Isaiah say there's going to come one who's going to be a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. In the Hebrew, the word is Pele Yoetz. Everyone, Yoetz. You should say Pele Yoetz. Everyone, turn your name and say Pele Yoetz. Pele Yoetz, God is our wonderful counselor. Pele means beyond understanding. Too wonderful for words, marvelous. You know, we think of the word wonderful, and we kind of say, well, you know, how was, how was your night out last night? Oh, it was wonderful. 
You know, how, how is your meal? Oh, it's wonderful, right? It's just, we just think of the word wonderful being as kind of like nice and, and whatnot. But when we think of the idea of wonder, full, it's mind-blowing. It's amazing. It's beyond comprehension. It's miraculous. The word is wonder, full, to be caused, to be full of wonder, to be amazed at the counsel of our Savior. Uh, Isaiah's writing this down, this description. He says, this is an awesome, wonderful counselor, beyond imagination too hard to describe. And then he says, Yoates. Yoates means counselor, advisor, consultant, or guide. Isaiah is prophesying to Judah that they're going to endure darkness, difficulty, and destruction as a result of turning away and abandoning God. But into the darkness, a light will shine. Into the darkness, freedom will come, and healing will come, and joy will be restored. And the catalyst for all of that is this child who will be born, who will be a Peleoates, a wonderful counselor. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm looking for advice, when I'm looking for someone to give me counsel, I kind of want to know what their credentials are. Right? I don't want to go to the internet necessarily for my advice. I want to know what their experience has been before I let them speak into my life. You know, I think counseling and therapy are really great. I've had some in my own life that really help partner with what God is doing in my life. But I think before we turn to the people around us, I think we need to know that God is our wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. How many know our wonderful counselor knows your need before you even ask? Whenever people come to my office and they say, you know, we need some pastoral counseling, you know, can you talk to me? Or whenever you go to a counselor or therapist, the conversation always starts with some form of a conversation around, tell me about yourself, right? How can I help you? Our wonderful counselor knows your needs before you even ask. And how many know sometimes before you even know what you need, right? How many know sometimes we are in the place of saying, I, I don't even know what I need. I just need some help. Matthew 6, 8 says that Jesus knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. There's no other counselor in the world that can say that. Jesus needs no introduction to your needs because he knows you wholly and completely. He knows your talents, your strengths. He knows your gifts because he gave them to you. He knows your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses. He knows your sin. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. Your counselor knows exactly what you need. Jesus knows what you need, and he doesn't even just know it by theory. How many know that you could read some things in a book and you could learn? Uh, but Jesus actually walked a mile in your shoes. In Hebrews 4, it says we have this high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, and so let us hold firmly to what we believe. So this high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The story of Christmas is that God isn't far off and distant, that God is not uninterested. We see the story that God became flesh and lived among us, that God has lived the experience that you and I are living. The Bible is clear that God knows the temptations that you deal with. It says that he is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
I think part of the incarnation is that God has come to experience life, not because he needed the knowledge, but we need the knowledge to know that our wonderful counselor knows what we're going through. Right? Have you ever talked to someone and you just say, you, you just can't understand? You just, you just haven't been what I've been through. Jesus says, I've come from the throne room of heaven to know what you're going through. Not for my learning, but for you to trust me that I know. And because we know he knows, we can trust his counsel. I love this. It says, let us come boldly to the throne of God. When we come boldly to the throne of God with our needs, you know, sometimes we go sheepishly. You know when we need help? And we kind of go sheepishly to, like, I'm sort of embarrassed that I need help. Jesus said, come boldly to receive the help that you need because uh, he has mercy and he has grace to help us when we need it most. Say boldly. Boldly. Come boldly to God. Don't come sheepishly. He already knows your needs, right? Sometimes you're like, oh, I don't really want to divulge. You go to the counselor and you're kind of, you know, you know, I hate to say, you know, you just want to always be best foot forward. That's how we live our lives, isn't it? Best foot forward. But when you get that guard completely down, Jesus said, come boldly. And you're not going to find condemnation or judgment from God. You're going to find grace and you're going to find mercy that's going to help you when you need it most. Our wonderful counselor knows exactly what we need. He also knows that he can help you. You know, sometimes people ask us for help. We find our friends in a difficult situation, or even if you're going to a professional counselor, we can sometimes be left at a loss of words. We hear what their need is, and we are searching for answers, scrambling for the right thing to say. And sometimes the only thing that we have to say is, I wish I could help. Or, I hope this helps. Jesus says, I know I can help. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, let me teach you. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus doesn't say, I hope I could help or I wish I could help. He says, I can help you. Come to me. Our wonderful counselor knows he can help you. And here's the best part. Our wonderful counselor always has availability. I was talking to some friends in the counseling world this week and they were just talking about how long the waiting list. How many know when you're in the midst of a crisis and you feel like I need to see somebody now, I need help right now, and you call the office and you get, well, we can get you in in six weeks or three months or six months. How many know that's not helpful, right? When we say, I need the help now, Jesus says, come to me and come to me now. It's not that Jesus is at our beck and call. But he doesn't make us wait when we need him. Psalm 50.15 says, call on me when you're in trouble and I will restore you and you will give me glory. We have this wonderful counselor who has availability for you and for me. There's no waiting list to get on. Jesus said, come to me and I will speak to you. You know, at the end of the year, I don't know, for those of you that get benefits, sometimes you get like a benefit statement 
and it kind of tells you what you've used up over the year. Your benefits tells you maybe what you have left over for those of you that enjoy benefits. For you, those of you that don't have benefits, you wish you had that kind of a thing. But how many know we do not want to have unused benefits when it comes to what Jesus is providing to us? How do we find help, healing, and wholeness? If you've ever been to counseling, the counselor will tell you this is only as good as what you put into it. Right? Nobody can want this more for you than you want it for yourself. Right? If you come to my office and I can tell when people really want help and I can tell people that just want to talk. Right? And the people that just want to talk don't really want help. They just want to get something off their chest. Right? But when we come to the counselor, we have to come. And our first point is how to find help, healing, and wholeness is that you need to be brutally honest with your counselor. Right? If you're hedging, if you're putting your best foot forward, if you're trying to paint yourself in a good light, you're not going to get the results that you want from your session together. I remember that as a high school kid, I was playing touch football with a bunch of kids, and uh, there were all these girls watching us, and it was really cool. Some of the girls were playing, I'm pretty sure, but we were playing touch football, and I got tackled, and as I fell to the ground, I landed on my own fist right in my side. And I got up, and I was in excruciating pain, and I got up as every high school boy does, and I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I just got to walk it off, you know. I just got the wind knocked out of me. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And about half an hour later, I was saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, I'm not fine. There's something wrong with me. How many know sometimes in life we do that? We go, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I I just got to walk it off. I just got to, you know, push through the pain. Uh, I love in the movie, The Italian Job. You've seen that movie? And at the start, the the, uh, father-in-law and the son are talking and, you know, uh, about to do this bank heist. And uh, I love the character of Mark Wahlberg. He says, I'm fine. You know, and Donald Sutherland says to him, you know what fine stands for, right? Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, right? How many of us sometimes we're walking around going, I'm fine, I'm fine. Really, we're not fine. We're freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. You know when you go to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve are hiding because of their sin? They're hiding in this place. And it says that God comes along and it's the midst of their shame. They're hiding from him. They used to walk with him every day, but they're in their shame, they're hiding from God. And God asks Adam and Eve one question. If we look at the story of the Genesis account, he asks one question. The question isn't, what have you done? God already knows what they've done. God already knows what we've done. He asks them one question. The question is this, where are you? Where are you? And it's not because God needed to know the answer. God knew the answer. He needed his people in their shame to understand where are you? What's happening in your life? Why are you hiding? What is the shame that's keeping you from me? We need to be honest about where we're at and what we're feeling and what we're struggling with, but the things we're afraid to let go of. We gotta stop hiding in our sin, stop numbing our pain, stop ignoring the cycles that keep us and keep robbing us of the peace of heart and peace of mind that God wants to bring. Here's the thing, that God can't heal what we won't reveal to him. You gotta be honest with our counselor. Acts 3 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We often think that God wants to punish us in our sin. It's quite the opposite. 
God wants to bring healing, freedom, peace, peace of heart, peace of mind. It's refreshing when we come just to, to have that secret exposed. And like I said, it's not that God doesn't already know our secrets. He does. But for us to share that secret, how many know when you have a secret of sin or shame, as long as you're in the secret, the enemy will try to tell you that you are uh, alone in that, you're the only one who experiences that. The enemy will keep you in bondage by thinking that your secret sin or your secret shame uh, is gonna keep you separated from the people who love you and from the God who created you. But how many know when you let that secret go and you tell that secret, that that secret loses its power? The secret has no power over you anymore. Getting that out in the public, getting it out, getting it dealt with. And I just love time and time again. It says that our sins are not held against us. Our sins are wiped away. And Jesus says times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. You gotta be brutally honest with your counselor. The next thing is that you need to listen to your counselor's Words. I remember I had a high school teacher and he used to always say, hear me now and listen to me later. Hear me now and listen to me later. How many know as a high school kid you don't care about history too much? But he said, hear me now and listen. There's a difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? All the men, right? There's a difference between hearing and listening, right? How many know we, we hear things but we're not always listening to what we're being told? There's, uh, to be honest, there's a few times I gotta call Holly back and say, I know you just told me something but I can't remember what it is. Can you please tell me again because this time I'm listening, you know, I'm listening. There's a difference. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. As followers of Jesus, we need to not just hear God, but we need to listen to God. God, what are you saying? What are you saying to me? And listening comes with this idea, how do I apply it to my life? You know, how does Jesus speak? Well, obviously, he speaks through the scriptures. I believe that 85 to 90% of what God wants us to know, he's already written down in the scriptures for us to glean from, to listen to, to understand and apply to our lives. I think he speaks to us through other godly believers. The Bible says that in the counsel of many, there is strength. And so I know that he speaks to us, the people around us. The Bible says that his Holy Spirit will remind us of all things and lead us in all truth. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. We need to, I was talking to one guy this week who's on a, on a journey uh, discovering God. And I kind of was saying to him, this room right now, and this room we're in right now, is filled with music. This room is filled with music. I know you can't hear it, but if you had a radio and you tuned it in, how many know this room is filled with music, right? It's not that the music comes when I turn the radio on, it's already here, right? But I learned to tune it in. I learned God's word is already going forth. God is speaking to us, but we have to develop the ability to tune in his voice, say, God, what are you speaking to me in this moment? And then the Bible talks about other examples where even in the Old Testament, God spoke through a donkey, you know, if he can't get anyone else to speak, he can speak through an ass. <laughs> New King James right there. Here's the number three. You need to do what your counselor tells you to do. James 1.27 says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise... You're only fooling yourself. If we go to a counselor, 
And we put up the facade and we put our best foot forward and we try to paint ourselves in the best light and we put our excuses and our reasons why it's not gonna work for us and the reasons why and we hear the counselor, we leave the office thinking that was good to get it off my chest. How do you know it's not until we put those words into action? We put those words into action. Do what it says or else you're only fooling yourself. How do you know sometimes God speaks and what he tells us to do doesn't make sense? See that throughout scripture all the time. A rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, go and sell all that you have. It's not really because Jesus wanted the man to be possessionless. Didn't make sense to the man because he had accumulated great wealth, but Jesus knew that the thing in his heart that he held and treasured the most was his possessions and his status that came as a result of it. Jesus said, give that all up. You'll find freedom. But the man said, this doesn't make sense. I'm not doing it. See a woman at a well. And Jesus says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he goes, well, yeah, that's because you've already had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. Jesus is saying to her, it's uncomfortable. But I want you to find healing and wholeness for your soul. So whether it doesn't make sense or you don't like what you hear, we still need to put in action what God is speaking to us. It's the way through to peace in the midst of chaos. Ahaz had the opportunity to trust in the Lord and yet he turned away. But now we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Pele Yoates. In him there's peace and strength and direction. You know, sometimes you need to go to therapy when you're doing well. You just need a checkup. You know, we often talk about us in crisis and how God wants to change and transform our lives, bring healing and wholeness. Sometimes you just need a tune-up. Sometimes you just need someone to listen to you and sometimes you just need to rub shoulders with someone with some good advice to encourage you. And so whether you're in this place today and you're saying, you know what, I need an overhaul of my life. I just need a counselor that I can go to. I've tried all the other things, but I need that wonderful counselor. Whether that's you or maybe you're here, you know, I've been journeying with Jesus for a few years now and I just love that I can go to him. He has access for me. I'm not on a waiting list. I can go and say, God, this is what's on my heart. I can talk about the things happening in me. And our wonderful counselor hears and, and brings life and healing and wholeness. I'm gonna invite you to stand all across this place this morning on this first Sunday of Advent. We're gonna pray together. Jesus, I just thank you that you're not a distant God, but you came and you lived among us. Not just so you could gain experience, you didn't need it, God, but we needed to know your credentials. God, that you know what we're going through and so we can come boldly to your throne of grace, not to find condemnation, judgment, not to have shame heaped upon us, God, but we can find grace and help and mercy when we need it most. And so I pray for my friends in this room today. God, whether they're in this hard place, maybe right now life seems chaotic. Maybe like King Ahaz, it seems dark. And it feels like the pressure is mounting, whether uh, it's financial pressure, relational pressure, uh, goal and career pressure, whatever that pressure is, Lord God, that in the midst of it, you said there's a light that will shine. 
It's the hope and the direction, the leading of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray right now, God, we would know that this isn't just for the people of the Old Testament. This isn't just written to those who are living in Matthew's day, Lord God. But we would look and say, for unto us, us today, us here in Penticton, God, us here in the Okanagan, us watching online, wherever we are watching, it's unto us. You've given this wonderful counselor. I pray, God, that we wouldn't leave that benefit unused. I pray, Jesus, that we would open our hearts, that we would open our minds to receive your word, your truth, your guidance, Lord, with honesty and humility, that you bring us healing and hope and transformation. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that this is a free gift, that this isn't even counseling that we have to pay for. It's actually counseling that you paid for. Lord, that on that tree of Calvary, you paid the price for our freedom, for our sin, for our shame, so that we could come and freely receive this grace today. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.